Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome to this episode of Grass Talk Radio. Before I get into the topic for today, I want to say thank you to everyone who has been downloading. I'm a little shocked by the numbers. I really didn't know if two or three people might download each episode, but the numbers are shockingly high considering that what I've created here is a niche within a niche. I I don't think I could have whittled the the uh, demographics of the audience down any smaller, except maybe if I had said people who want to play bluegrass music left-handed, maybe that would have been smaller, but just the idea that I'm doing a podcast for people who play bluegrass, that's small. That is very small. Small but good, as you know. So it's it's primarily for people who are learning to play bluegrass. And if you look at the billions of people on the planet, it's a pretty small percentage who are learning to play bluegrass music. But that's what it takes, just a small, dedicated minority. So I know this show will never be as popular as, let's say, the Joe Rogan experience or something like that. And I'm I'm cool with that because I, I want to talk to you about what you are into. And if you're sitting there listening to this, I know that you want to play bluegrass. So I just want to say thank you for doing that and also ask you to go to iTunes. iTunes is still the number one podcast directory. You can listen to the show on Podbean or you can listen to it on Stitcher. And there may be some other places that have picked it up. Or you can listen to it on iTunes. But iTunes still commands the bulk of the traffic. So if you can, even if you don't subscribe at iTunes, if you can go over to iTunes and rate and review the show, that would do a lot to help move my little logo up in that list towards the top and other people will find it. And I hope this is beneficial to anyone who's learning to play. Now, the topic for today's episode, I'm going to cover kind of two things. Later, I'm going to talk about how we learn. And I've, I've touched on this a little bit in previous episodes, but today I'm going to dig a little deeper into the process of training yourself to do these physical tasks of playing music. And the other thing that I'm going to start with is to discuss why some people seem to move ahead and they start and they're doing great and then other people just don't seem to do that well. I've already covered that in two episodes so far because it's a very important aspect of learning to play. Some people do well and some don't. And I want you to be in the do well category. Now, I want to tell you right up front that my my notes for what I'm talking about today are coming directly out of a book that I wrote. I wrote a book called Mandolin Training Camp. I think I did it in 2006. Mandolin Training Camp. It's a book which I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're a mandolin player, you might want to look at it. But the reason I'm I'm using this as sort of my notes for today 
just open my book here, is that a banjo player is not going to ever buy mandolin training camp, but he can learn from the same concepts and ideas that I put out in mandolin training camp. It's good for banjo players, bass players, fiddle players. I don't care what you play. If you play the bagpipes, if you're not even into bluegrass, if you're playing saxophone in the high school band, what I'm going to say today applies to you too. So if you know some kid that's not doing so good in band, you know, hey, make him listen to this podcast or just make him a copy of it and give it to him. I'm mostly talking about bluegrass musicians, but all this stuff applies to any kind of music you're playing and a whole lot of other subjects, topics, uh, hobbies, fields of interest, uh, coming up short on words for that, but you know what I'm talking about. I don't care if it's flint napping, home brewing, gardening, uh, poetry writing, wood carving, a welding of weird like junk art out of, I don't care what it is. Anything you're learning to do, these basic principles apply. There are people who excel at it and there are people who lag behind. So I'm using as my notes, I'm, I have my book, Mandolin Training Camp, open to page 14. And I, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of the things that I said in that book for the benefit of the non-mandolin players. So the first thing I want to talk about is why some people advance and some lag behind. If you've ever been on a hike with a group of people, you'll find that at first everybody's all bunched up together and some people are crowding the, the group from behind. and But after an hour or so of hiking up the mountain, the group spreads out. You got the real, you know, athletic types there at the front and they're, you know, like Marine Corps and they're, you know, they're way at the front and they're, they're determined to get there first. And then you got other people that are looking at the birds and, oh, you know, look at the beautiful sunset and wow, that cloud and they lag to the, to the back. And then you got the people that are physically unable or having trouble and they're really lagging at the back and the group spreads out. Well, that's the same in music. If, if I took 10 people who said they wanted to play the banjo and put them in the same room, a month later, one or two of them are going to be doing pretty good and one or two of them will have quit. And then in the middle are all these people drifting around. It's just like that group of trail hikers who have spread out along the trail. So why is this? Well, let me talk about one, one of the things that keeps a lot of potentially great players from advancing to being at the forefront and on the crest of that wave at the head of that line. What is this thing? Well, I think what it is, is when you're faced with something that is difficult to do and learning to play an instrument is not easy. Right? Parts of it are easy. But to be a good musician, to be able to play really well, it's not easy. But let's say you're trying to learn something. So you open your book to some song. Maybe you're trying to play the Up the Neck Break of Salt Creek or you're, whatever you're working on. I don't care what it is. You've got a little thing and you're going to practice it. 
Well, which of the following do you tend to do when you practice? A, you try it, and then you move on without having mastered it. Or B, you try it, and you work on it, and you keep working on it, and you keep working on it until you master it. That's the two types of people. You got one that'll look at it, try it, fiddle around with it, play it a few times, and turn the page. Try to find something easier. And, and, you know, honestly, that may be good because maybe what you were trying to do was too difficult for you at this time. I'm not saying you shouldn't turn the page in the book. You want to find something that you can do. So skimming through, let's say you have a book of tunes and you're going to try to learn to play. Skimming through, turning the pages, looking for something you can actually do, that's a good thing. But now once you've found that thing and you begin to practice it, are you going to stay with it long enough to play it? To really, I mean, burn it into your subconscious? Or are you going to get partway through it and just keep turning the pages? The large majority of players tend to do A, and that's try it and then move on without mastering it. But the better players, the people you see on stage, even if they're little local bands, those people, they're in the B category. Now, you may counter that some things are easier for some folks than others, and that is true to an extent. But keep in mind that if you practice something to the point where you can do it, quote, pretty good, you will develop into a, quote, pretty good player. If that's your goal, it just I just want to be able to sort of kind of play it, you're going to be a sort of kind of play it player. Now, if you practice something until you can do it, quote, darn good, you're going to be a pretty darn good player. And the same goes for other categories of not worth a hoot or fair to midland or average or pretty good or totally awesome. Whatever that standard is you set for yourself before you quit and turn the page, that is exactly what you're going to become. You are not going to become a totally awesome player if the standard you strive for during your practice sessions is pretty good. You want to be totally awesome, but your standard is pretty good. You're only going to turn out pretty good. So you need to raise your standards. The higher you raise your standards, the higher the possibilities are for you to achieve that standard. Now you got to be your own critic during practice sessions. I don't care if you're taking private lessons and a guy's standing over you tapping his baton or ruler on the music stand and hitting you on the knuckles or something. There are teachers like that. I, I never did that. I figured, you know, most people teach themselves and I'm just here to kind of show them a little bit. And if they get it, they get it. But there are those types of teachers. You might have taken lessons for, from somebody like that who really, really, really just cracks the whip. And, you know, maybe that's good for some people. 
But you have to develop the ability to do that for yourself. You know, you got to be your own critic during practice sessions and you have to observe how you're doing. I, I used to say that when a student would come in for the very first lesson, I would say, I just want to make this clear right at the outset that I cannot teach you how to play that thing. And they look at you and they're like, oh man, I, why, did, <laughs> why did I call this guy? Here he is saying he can't teach me. And it's true. I can't teach anybody how to play an instrument. You have to teach yourself how to, how to do it. I can teach you how to teach yourself. I can also show you tunes, exercises, chords. I can explain various theory ideas and, you know, put forth these concepts. But in the end, you have to teach yourself. It's lonesome. But that's the way it is. Everything is self-taught. So there you are, practicing. Hopefully you've learned how to sort of monitor your own playing. I used to give people this little analogy, and I would say, picture yourself that you're a prison guard. If you ever watched that old uh, TV show, I, I don't remember what, oh, uh, I don't remember the name of it now. Stalag 13, something like that. It was a German prison camp, World War II. And it was a comedy. They, they, they don't make Nazi comedies anymore, but they did back then. So just picture you're, you are a prison guard and you're up in that watchtower and you've got that searchlight and you're, you're shining the searchlight along the fence. You're looking for that guy to be crawling under the wire. You know, so you've got your searchlight and you look to the right and then you swing around to the left and you go around behind there and over this way and you come back around. You can't look at the whole fence at once. So you have to take that spotlight and move it along. And that's what you can do while you're practicing. You can't pay attention to your right and left hand at the same time. So what you want to do is your higher self, your conscious self sits up there at the top of your watchtower and you're practicing and you focus your spotlight on the left hand as you're playing this, let's say eight note exercise that you're doing over and over and over and over and over. On the first repetition, you watch your left hand. On the second repetition, maybe you Concentrate on your left shoulder. Are you raising it up and poking it in your ear? Is it really tense and you let it down? And then you work your way around to your right shoulder. Is it nice and relaxed? And then on the next repetition, your searchlight goes down your right arm. And you watch your hand and you observe it. You take in all of the aspects of playing, and it's more than just right and left hand. It's also, are you holding your breath? Are your feet all bunched up inside your shoes? I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that can happen when you play. So you're that guy up there 
shining the spotlight around, observing each thing individually, one at a time. So that's a good way to, as you repeat something over and over and over, to kind of take inventory of all of the aspects of your body and just notice what they're doing. And if they're doing something that's not contributing to you playing well, you know, take note of that and try to correct it. These are the kind of things that only you can do alone while you practice. The teacher, he will, if you're, if you're running through that same exercise for the teacher, he might mention those things and point out this and point out that. And, and, you know, you're, you're letting the neck drop down in the palm of your hand and you're, you're mashing down too hard on the top and, you know, may point out all these things. All the teacher is really trying to do is teach you how to be observant of yourself while you practice alone, because nobody's ever going to learn to play in 30 minutes once a week. You got to practice at home and you have to kind of duplicate the teaching process where your conscious mind is observing your body working. So you're your own teacher. Okay, enough of that. Let me, let me mention something. It's very important. I mention this to every student I, I have that I've ever had and that I ever will have. It's very, very important that you understand the difference between practicing and playing. Practicing is that process I just described. You analyze what it is you're trying to do and you begin to work on doing it. And you climb up the, the watchtower and observe all parts of your body and the sound that's coming out. And you make little corrections here and there. It's work. Practicing is work. It's concentrated effort. Because you're trying to make multiple repetitions and doing it all in the correct way. And if you do that, over enough time, your subconscious will absorb that, and that's the way it will just come out. Then there is playing, which is completely different than practicing. Do not play while you practice, and do not practice while you play. I've played with guys, you know, maybe you, your, your, your fiddle player can't show up one night, and you call a guy, and you say, hey, can you come play fiddle with us tonight? And he says, sure. And he shows up, he doesn't really know your arrangements and your, your tunes and stuff. And you're rolling through the first verse and the chorus and then a mandolin break and the second verse and the chorus. And he knows you're going to look at him to take a break. And he's over there practicing his break during your verse, during your mandolin break. He's trying his break kind of, he's not up too close to the microphone, but he's practicing He's practicing. He's trying to figure out what is he going to do when, boom, take it. And it's now the fiddle solo. And I heard him do all those things seven times. He played it. Well, he was fiddling around with it, but he's basically practicing while he's performing. It's not generally a good idea to do. You just... You know, you have to know it well enough so that you don't have to practice your break during the other guy's break, you know. You need to know it well enough that you can do something else or nothing, and then when it's your turn, hit it and blast it out and play your solo. 
So don't, don't spend your time at performances or at jam sessions practicing. It's not going to help you play, and you're certainly not going to be listening to what all is going on around you if you're sitting there trying to figure out what you're about to do. You try to practice during performance. That is a bad idea. What you got to do is practice at home. Practice on your own. Get it all figured out. Train your subconscious. And then when you go out to play, whether it's a jam session or a gig, don't worry about it. Just play whatever comes out. Yeah, you're going to try to play good. And, you know, you're going to try to remember what you practiced. That's cool. But playing and practicing are two completely different things. And you should be doing both. I've known people that practice, 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 and they never played. Even when they'd get in a jam session, it seemed like they were just practicing. And then I've known other people that it was play, 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 and they never practiced. And it that showed too. Separate these two things in your mind. Every time you open that case and you pull that instrument out, say to yourself, self, am I about to practice or am I about to play? And you should be doing both. You've got to do both because... Ultimately, music is about playing. You've got to practice playing, if you know, if you get what I'm saying. But don't be practicing on stage. Don't be practicing at jam sessions. Just play. Have a good time. Be like that kid in a sandbox. You turn a three-year-old loose in a sandbox with a couple of dump trucks. That kid's going to play. He ain't going to practice, you know? So keep that in your mind. You can read more about this in my book, Mandolin Training Camp, if you're a mandolin player. The difference between practicing and playing. But separate those two things in your mind. All right, now very quickly, I'm going to run down. I've turned the page in Mandolin Training Camp. And I have a list on page 22 that says a few more things to think about. And this is you while you're practicing. These are some things you want to think about. And this is that guy up on the guard tower with the spotlight. These are the sort of things you might pay attention to. Number one, before you practice, decide how long are you going to play that particular exercise or piece of a tune or tune or whatever it is you're doing. You might, for example, say, well, I'm going to do this for 10 minutes. Okay, really try to do that. I think a lot of people, they'll say, I'm going to play this for 10 minutes. They play it about three minutes and they move on. And that's why they don't get any better. If you say 10 minutes, do 10 minutes. Number two, all right, go through the exercise or lick or tune, part of a tune, ape, whatever. Go through the thing you are about to practice and be sure you understand what it is you're trying to do. Be sure that you know what the pick directions are, which string you're supposed to hit, which finger is supposed to do what. You know, go through that first. Make Familiarize yourself with what it is you're about to do. Number three, use the metronome. Begin at the slowest speed. Number four, attempt to make every note perfectly executed and timed. That's hard. 
But if you don't try to do that, it's very unlikely that you will do that. Number five, if you are successful at that speed, increase to the next speed. Number six, and this is important, if you notice mistakes, go back to a slower speed or perhaps the slowest speed. That's really important because the last thing you want to do is continue to practice, practice, practice at a speed where you're screwing up. If you're screwing up, you're getting practice about how to screw up and you're going to be a screw up. So if you're making mistakes, you obviously can't play it well at that speed, so back it down. Play it at a speed you can play it, where you're successful. You want successful repetitions. Okay, number seven. Pay attention to the sound of the notes. Do you sound good? Are your notes definite and solid? Are you getting the tone out of the instrument that it's capable of producing? Number eight. Stay on that one thing. Exercise, tune, so many measures, whatever it was you decided, stay on that one thing the full amount of time that you decided to practice it. Number nine, try to maintain that relaxed feeling that you had at the very slowest speeds as you increase through the speeds. That may be the hardest thing you'll ever try to do in playing bluegrass because it's fast. And the guys that can really tear it up, they are very relaxed while that tornado is happening. But you can learn to do that by playing it at the speed at which you're capable of, not the speed just above that which you're capable of. And number 10, when the time is up, when the little egg timer goes ding, congratulate yourself. You are now one of the very few bluegrass musicians in the world who has actually practiced correctly for 10 minutes. All right, now I want to talk about something else. Imagine, imagine that you are practicing a little thing. Maybe you're playing that shave and a haircut, ding, 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 on the banjo. Or it's a lick on the dobro. I don't care what it is you're practicing. Just a little small thing. So you're practicing this thing and you decide to practice it for 10 minutes. When we are practicing, we want to make every attempted note as perfect as possible. Now this is why this is so important. Let's say you play a little, I don't know, 12, 13 note snatch of music and that little thing, that's the thing you're practicing. And you follow all those rules that I gave you, those one through 10, and you work your way up through the metronome speeds. Now let's say you played that thing 100 times. And let's say I was a teacher and I was gonna give you a grade. We'll use A, B, C, D, or F, just like in school. I'm gonna, as soon as you finish that repetition, I'm gonna give it a grade. A, absolutely perfect. B, almost perfect. C, eh, you might fool them. 
D. <laughs> what was that? F. Oh, man. <clears throat> you know what F is. Okay. Now, I've taped my own practice sessions and some of my students, and I've come up with a distribution of grades that the typical person makes when they're practicing. You might have, out of that, 100 repetitions. You might have 20 that are grade A, maybe 20 that are grade B, about 30 that grade C might fool them, and you got about 20 that are like D, what was that? And you'll have about 10 that are just like, whoa, F. That's a typical distribution. 20A, 20B, 30C, 20D, and 10 Fs. Now listen, practicing like that will guarantee that you will make no progress in becoming a better player. I think instead of calling it practicing, I would call that wasting your time. Hey, I will confess, that is how I practiced for years, and I'm not the only one. I thought that since I was trying to learn to play something that I couldn't play yet, I was bound to make a few mistakes. And I thought if I played it enough times, I would eventually get better at it. But that doesn't work. And what little bit you do gain from all this is just incredibly slow. So why doesn't this type of practice, this distribution of you're nailing it one out of five times, you know, you're only getting an A about one out of five repetitions. Why doesn't that work? Well, this is what I think. I think when you're born, your brain, it doesn't know anything about how to play an instrument. There were some things you did know in the crib, you know, how to make a fist and how to grab onto something, squeeze your daddy's finger or something. But you could not play an A minor seventh chord on the mandolin while you were chewing on the bars of the crib. At some point, as you grew older, you decided to get yourself a mandolin or a banjo or a dobro or a guitar and teach yourself to play it. And your brain has accumulated this pile of programs, which are really sets of instructions, that command your muscles how to play that instrument. Now think about this. Consider that your brain is a computer. Repetition of movements is how you program that brain computer. If you play a little lick, we're talking about that little lick that you're practicing, if you play that thing with the distribution of grades, 20A, 20B, 30C, 20D, and 10F, if you play it with that kind of distribution while you're inputting data into your mental computer, it will be a very confused computer. If you play some of the attempts at grade A, some at grade B, some at C, some at D, some at F, your brain is trying to retain information on how to make all those different muscle motions. And some of them are pretty screwed up. The brain, I'm talking about your subconscious part of your brain, it doesn't know what you're trying to do. Let's say you play those notes five different ways. Some good, some bad. The brain's going to have to keep them all and try to sort them out. 
and store them as five different distinct sets of instructions. Because if you keep playing it in a sort of incorrect way over and over and over, how does your subconscious know that that's not what you're trying to do? It's going to store that. The more you repeat something, the more it gets stored. But in your conscious mind, you've labeled all of those differing instructions, A through F, with the same label. That cool lick that I play on a B chord. Or the A minor 7 chord. Or the first two measures of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. That's your conscious mind tag or label for what you're trying to do. But your subconscious, it's got five different versions of how to do it. And, and in truth, it may have 500 versions because you're probably feeding it a, a lot of different versions. I'm just lumping them together in A, B, C, D, and F. But, you know, there are gradations between those. What you want are many, many, many repetitions of grade A and as few as possible of B through F. So now, how do you fix this when you're practicing? If that's the typical distribution, well, you need to change that distribution. Here's what I would say is if you, if you slow down to where each time you repeat it, you're actually playing it well, this sort of grade distribution of A, B, C, D, F is a lot better. Let's say you go slow enough that you can play it 97 out of 100 times at grade A. And you had 2 at grade B and 0 that would get a grade C and 1 D and 0 F. Now that is a whole lot better. Your subconscious is getting mostly a set of con consistent instructions. And later, as you go through your day or you're sleeping, that night while you're sleeping, your subconscious is going to examine what you did. That all those repetitions, and it's going to say, this thing he did 97 times, I'm going to keep that. There's a very good chance that tomorrow he's going to do that same thing. And those couple that those two grade B's and that one grade D, it's probably just going to vaporize those. He only did it once. He's probably not going to do it again. You see how this works? You want as many repetitions as possible, as perfectly as you can manage. That's it. Now your brain is not confused. When you think of my new lick or that lick I play over the B chord or the first two measures of Foggy Mountain Breakdown, when you think that, your conscious mind thinks that, up comes from your subconscious mind this program that tells your muscles what to do. And it pops up and it's very predictable. Because you did it 97 times in a row, the thing that comes up from your subconscious is a lot more likely to be like the thing you repeated many, 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 many times. So the, the game with practice is trying to do something enough times perfectly 
to program the subconscious to repeat it back perfectly. And I won't get into a bunch of talk about speed and so on, but I believe that your subconscious is capable of playing back the program at any speed. It doesn't really care how fast you play it. The timing of individual muscles, contract this one, relax that one, contract this one, relax this one, contract, all those instructions could be played at various speeds. Now, there might be an upper speed limit physically for you, but the, the difficulty is not in the brain. The brain can fire off those things, just like you could take a record. Take an old vinyl record, put it on a record player. You can play it at 16, or you can play it at 33 and a third, or you can play it at 45. The record player does not care. And you're going to get a different speed of music out of each speed setting. But the basic programming is the same. So just remember this. The higher the ratio of perfect repetitions to imperfect repetitions, the more productive your practice will be. And think about if you were training a dog. Consistent disciplinary instructions will yield better performance out of a dog. If you give a dog inconsistent sets of cross signals, he's going to act very unpredictable. So every effort should be made to make every note while practicing absolutely perfect, regardless of how slow you have to go. But when you're done with all this practice, you also have to play. It's perfectly okay to open your instrument, pull it out, and just goof around. Play. And when you go to a jam session or a gig, for God's sake, don't practice. At that point, you've either got it or you don't. You are what you are. Just let it come out. That also is hard to do. You're going to have a hard time not doing practicing while you're playing. But I would just say that the better entertainers and the better sounding musicians are just playing. They're just letting that subconscious roll. So anyway, I hope this episode helped you figure out how to practice more effectively. And I hope you will go on iTunes, rate the show, write a review, and of course, share this with all of your friends in that niche within a niche of people who are trying to learn to play bluegrass. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.